here we are. We are back from Change to Change. I am DJ Bruja. And today we have an incredibly special guest, Mr. Calvin Duncan. How are you doing, Calvin? Good, good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so do you remember when we first met? Yes. Um, at Tulane University, you were just, you was um, touring the Tulane Law School to determine whether you was going to accept the offer. Yeah. And um, one of the professors, that Catherine knew, Mattis, Catherine asked me to come down and she introduced me to you. That's how we met. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about you. And then she said something like, I think you might even be around. Yeah. And then uh, and I'd heard about you from Norris. But uh, let's back up a little bit. So so Calvin, you know, you got quite a story. Uh, a lot of folks are familiar with you, whether they did time with you a lot of time in Angola or whether they worked with you uh, after you got out and, and won your freedom uh, or whether they went to law school with you yourself. So um, let's just start. You know, we we were talking earlier about this book right here. Yep. So when you were in prison, what year did you go to prison? 1982. 82. Damn, I was like, what was I doing? I was just start just learning how to break dance. So yeah, uh, cool. 82 was a good year for that. So um when did you first pick up the West Louisiana criminal law and procedure thick ass book here? What year do you think that was when you first got into a book like this? I think it was probably 1984, um, 85. Okay. I was um, I'd already been indicted. I was in um, Orleans Parish Prison. Mm-hmm. I was um the state um was seeking the death penalty. Mm. And uh, my lawyers wasn't coming to see me. I had no legal, uh, really, the lawyers, they was overworked. They had mm-hmm. the same lawyers representing everybody uh, that was charged with a capital offense. Well, there was only like one or two lawyers doing that. And a lot of people don't know that at that time, there was no Orleans public defender. Yeah. Um, so, so, so it was sort of, yeah, we had a public defender, but wasn't the public defender that the people know that exists now. Mm-hmm. So we only had a few um, capital defense lawyers, and they was representing um, everybody that was in the parish Mm -hmm. of jail facing the capital offense. And so what I would generally do is um, read the newspaper articles and accumulate articles that dealt with people that was um, that had lawyers and Mm -hmm. the newspaper would always write something about the law and I would compile those and I was I call that my law book. Okay. But then at some at some um, um and I decided to file a motion mm-hmm. with the with the court and ask the court to give me with it with a criminal code of procedure. Because was there a law library in the, the jail at that time? No, they, we didn't have a law library. We we didn't have access to any legal research mm-hmm. material. So I filed the motion to, with the Louisiana Supreme Court. I sent it to the wrong court, <laughs> and then they wound up saying, "Look, you sent it to the wrong court." You should have started at the trial level. So uh-huh. what they did remanded it to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals remanded it to my trial judge. And my trial judge called me to court one day, told my gave my lawyer a criminal code procedure and told me, my lawyers told me the judge say, here's your, your law book. <laughs> Don't let nobody take it away from you. Did anyone try to take it away from you? No, no, they didn't. He was more concerned about the guards uh-huh. when they would come down and do this massive shakedown they would take our legal material for us. And so did you, uh, what was the first time, you know, maybe someone, you know, raided your cell and then saw a, a legal book? Like so, what? 
So what they would generally generally do is do these massive um, shakedown, and then they would um, and some of ours, um, some of us would always they was they they labeled us as naggers, <laughs> but we was actually trying to get um, um, get what we needed like um, windows and we um, to be free from violence. We would file nineteen eighty three actions. That, when they would put us in the um in the dungeons in mm -hmm. an administrative lockdown without due process, or they would come and shake down our um um do this massive um shakedown and take all our legal material mm -hmm. so that we couldn't do it, and then as soon as they left the tier, first thing we had to do was file a complaint then a 1983 to make them actually re reimburse us or restore the mm -hmm. material that they took away from. And there was about 6,000 people back then, or were they not quite at that level just yet uh, in, they, I, in the jail? I, I think the parish prison at that time had like 3,000. Okay. About how many do you think were facing capital charges like yourself? Um, let's say during, when I, during my time, I think probably like, I would say about 200 people. Mm -hmm. Because some of them actually was given, sentenced to death. In my case, the jury rejected the death penalty, and I was sentenced to the to remain of my life in mm -hmm. prison. And we've got a, another book handy too that uh, that we're we're seeing on the shelf. We've got Killing Time yeah. uh, about John Thompson, known to, to many, including ourselves, as JT, uh, who was exonerated from death row. Yeah. What what you remember? What year he went down? I think he John was arrested probably like in nineteen eighty five. This is a little after you because I was only in a parish jail with John. I remember when he was sentenced to death, and then when I went to Angola. And applied for the inmate counsel job, which is the jailhouse house lawyer mm -hmm. position. John was on death row, and mm -hmm. I and I applied for the job to work with the guys on death row in 1991, and um, that's where John was. What was it like the first day you went to Angola? Well, I, I, I would always when I make the comparison, I would say that the Orleans Parish Prison was hell, mm. and Angola was paradise. <laughs> I so, hear. You. The whole idea was to, once you was convicted and sentenced, you didn't have any access to legal material. You didn't have an access to mm -hmm. uh, access to your lawyer, a lawyer. So the thing was that once you got to the Angola, you could get access to the law library. They had a group of guys there willing to. At that time, I think they had like what twelve inmate counsel. Was Norris one of them? Norris was one. That guy, Norris. He's everywhere, right? Yeah, Norris was one. <laughs> how, big was, how big of a space was it, you, you, you reckon? The library was, um, I, I don't know, it was It was a nice size space to, uh -huh. to actually have all of the updated books. Mm -hmm. We had criminal code. We had um, the green books, which is the annotated statutes. Yeah. Um, we had um, federal reporters. We had Supreme Court reporters. We had Sun reporters. So it, had, mm -hmm. it was a nice size. Yeah. I used to when the when the um, when the supplements would come out, I would just read every single like case blurb that had to do with with criminal law. That's what Norris. That was Norris' job. Norris had to read every case, and what they would generate. Norris and the other people that would work with Norris would make little cards. We didn't have computers back mm -hmm. then. We had the index cards. So when a person would come to the library, if he was looking for some some cases about. Um, Hearsay, mm -hmm. you would actually, Norris would have already updated it, and that if guy pull a card and then see what the, the volume is, and then go to the, the, mm -hmm. the shelves 
and retrievable. So let's talk for a sec about the 9AMS jury uh, issue. So for people that don't know, right, like in Louisiana for what, about 150 years, was it? Yep, it was a bit of time. Uh, you could get a 10-2 verdict. Two people yep. could say not guilty. Still go away. 11-1. How many, what was your... Mine was because it was a capital offense. It was unanimous. Unanimous, right? Unanimous had to be all, all of them. And so, at what point, and maybe it was while you were awaiting trial, or at what point did you realize, like, wow, this not even this jury thing, it just don't smell right. It wasn't until I got to Angola mm-hmm. when I started working on people cases. Like the first when I realized, um, began researching it. It was that some guys, especially a lot of them from New Orleans, they was in prison as a second offender and they used a previous conviction, which the multiple is mm-hmm. the predicate to the multiple bill, which led to them get, being sentenced to like 198 years. Mm-hmm. And looking at those previous convictions, some of those was um, non-unanimous, um, also. non-unanimous mm-hmm. but they was for six-member juries. Because mm, they were pettier. They were yes. lesser crimes. And so the United States Supreme Court said that um, for those crimes, it had to be unanimous. So then I would um, file and say, look, these non-unanimous jury verdict convictions is unconstitutional. They should not have been used as a basis for the multiple enhancing a person's sentence. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time that when I was researching, I would work on people cases that it was it looked it was obvious that the guys is innocent, mm-hmm. but their verdict was 10 to 11 one. Mm. So back then it was like one juror had it right, eleven yeah. had it wrong, two had it right, and then but I still would raise the issue. Although the United States Supreme Court had said in Apodaca that a non-unanimous jury verdict conviction is okay, that if if two of the jurors determine that um, a person wasn't guilty, but that was okay. Those two jurors would not count, mm-hmm. and the ten would, and the person would be sentenced to life in prison. But what we noticed that in a lot of cases that um, some of those guys was innocent. That was really kind of like really got me on to that. Some of them wasn't innocent, but I didn't find out the history. I just it just assumed that it was the law. It United was States Supreme was, right? Court in nineteen seventy two mm-hmm. said it was okay, mm-hmm. and it was there's only two states. Oregon and Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Okay, so but it's still wrong. It's still, in my view, it's still violated the Sixth Amendment right. Mm-hmm. You have to have all every state in the United States required it. But then it wasn't until I got out of prison that I ran across this article in the, li- in the um, state Supreme Court library that said that our United Nine Unanimous Jury Verdict Law was introduced for the sole purpose of preserving white supremacy. Uh, Supremacy. Yeah. It's funny because like, you know, I was incarcerated up north. I'd never heard of a non-AMS jury system anywhere. Um, You know, there were no updates on Apodaca, which was a 70s case, you know, during my stint in in incarceration. And I went to Tulane Law School here in in Louisiana. I am 99.9% certain that the term non-unanimous jury was never mentioned anywhere. And I took criminal law, right? And now it may have been mentioned in some other classes, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, but of course, you know, working with Vote and Noah Norris and everything, I got familiarized about it. But it's just amazing how 
impactful of a sort of best kept secret this yeah. was. And then when we, you know, created a campaign around it, you know, we were able to take a lot of folks that didn't even know about it to yeah, then educate. agree, yeah. like, this is ridiculous. How is this, like, this is happening? So, um, but let's, let's get back to, um, you know, when you got out uh, or how you got out, yeah. right? And so, because so, a lot of cases, you know, I kept, from an outsider perspective, I've heard a lot of y'all's different stories or, mm-hmm. or read about them in different ways. And I just see all these kinds of patterns of like why there's so many wrong convictions, particularly in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Right. We've kind of maybe slowed them down a little bit. But, you know, you, you, you dealt with how many you know, you've read all the cases to a degree. What are some of the patterns of like why there's so many wrongful convictions in Louisiana? So I think the two reasons. For, for the New Orleans area, our district attorney, Harry Connick, was like... Kill them all? No, he was like, <laughs> the United States Supreme Court tells me I have to share favorable evidence with, with the defense. I don't agree with it, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to enforce it. I'm mm-hmm. not going to require the prosecutors to, to disclose favorable evidence to the defense, meaning that the prosecutors in New Orleans would actually have evidence that a person is innocent, and they would not share that with the defense. So our prosecutor, Harry Connick, had a policy that say, "You don't turn over anything. Don't, don't, whatever the Supreme, what the Supreme Court said in nineteen yeah. sixty-three, don't, don't comply with it." And the second thing is that we had a system, a public defender system, where people, you know, they couldn't afford the lawyers. We had to rely on these groups of lawyers. But the state, but the parish would never adequately fund. So as a result of the prosecutors have an evidence, police department have an evidence that would exonerate a person. Mm-hmm. And the public def- and our lawyers not having access to that, 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 that evidence and not having the resource to um, investigate cases. Mm-hmm. That led to a lot of people being wrongfully convicted. Yeah. So it was basically like unchallenged accusations. Yep. You know, yep. he did it. And then you didn't have any comeback, including yep. the fact that. Yeah, you said it was someone who was six eight with purple hair, and I'm like five nine. Yeah, you know? so, like, like <laughs> my lawyers did not come to see me until the night of my trial, mm. the night before my trial, and they only came to see me to to see if I had clothes. My family was going to be able to bring me clothes to wear. The Important stuff, you know, like yeah. you got any clothes? That's it. <laughs> and even years later, my lawyer signed an affidavit that, um, unfortunately, he just never had the opportunity to investigate my case. So yeah. that's. So when you when you have a, a agency that have that done done some investigation that has all of the evidence that would mm-hmm. exonerate a person, and you have a public defender's um, system that's not funded adequately, mm-hmm. you have that's, that's why the only way it can even work, right? Is if you've got you know obviously the police are out there at times really yeah. pounding the pavement, talking to everybody, getting all these different statements, all these potential witnesses. On and on, they're doing scientific analysis. Like they're paid by the same taxpayers who are paying the judges, who are paying the you know the system. But when they only kind of inherently work for the prosecutor, and then when the prosecutor is not playing fair, yeah. The it, unless the defense attorneys had like their own army of like investigators, which even now, how many investigators are down at OPD? You think? I think I, they don't have enough, but they had way more than what right, they right. Have. And I remember though, didn't like. 
in recent years, before yeah. the parody argument that they should be funded the same, yeah, it was like they had just about like maybe twice or three times as many investigators as as I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know the real the numbers, mm-hmm. but um, but what I thought was strange years later, um, well, what I thought was strange was that our criminal legal system uh, took advantage of people understanding that they was the fair parties, that yeah. the prosecutors would never convict an innocent person. All the police is out there really doing a job. And as a, as a and people in society really believe that these, they all, you know, they all fair. Yeah. They, this, they actually this do presumption this. presumption of the truth. And But the only reason why that exists is because we didn't have access to any of the documents mm-hmm. to prove otherwise. And so, I thought that was really strange, and that led to wrongful conviction because when a when a when a juror hear that a police officer says that what well, a defendant um I arrested I read him his rights and he told me um this is told me that he committed the crime that he was sorry, or when a prosecutor says that um the witness positively identified this person as the person that killed him, nobody questioned that. And the sad part about it, our lawyers didn't question it either. Mm-hmm. And our judges didn't request it. Mm-hmm. I was tried before a judge, Frank Shea, that had one time, one day, and one day he had six felony jury trials. Wow. That's just like McDonald's drive through And that's what it was in his section of court. So nobody questioned that until years later that, um, and so about, you know, in Angola, um, I used to work on a lot of cases, but the problem was I couldn't get people documents. Mm-hmm. The state, the government, the documents we needed was in the hands of the same people that unlawfully prosecuted us. And trying to get their documents was a struggle. And then some, like in 2000, we got lucky. Um, an intern named Emily Bolton, she toured the library and we had a seminar and we explained to her that look, a lot of people, not everybody in prison is innocent, but we have a, some guys that we really it looks like they're innocent, but we can't leave the prison and investigate, and we can't get their documents. And she promised that once she graduated from Tulane University, that she would come back and help us, mm-hmm. and she did. And that's how the New Orleans Innocent Project was created. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so you won your freedom, like a lot of people. Um, but tell me a, a, a minute about the case the situation that I know you've known multiple people have been in uh, where you overturn your conviction and then the state wants to prosecute you or hold you without bail. Then you get this option to sign here and go home today. Yes. So that is, um, well, I, I could talk about my own case and then I was, um, I was ultimately, um, got the help from the New Orleans Innocent Project. We discovered evidence that, that goes to my innocent, that if a jury would have heard it, I would have been found not guilty. However, by the time that my case was back before a judge for a hearing, I had I had a judge, his name is Julian Parker. He was once the prosecutor, and he put on record that he once assisted in my prosecution. But then by the time my case came along, he was like, I don't remember the case, but I did work under the supervision of the guy that prosecuted the case. Mm-hmm. 
But because his name was nowhere on my record, he decided that, well, I don't have to accuse myself because I don't remember any of the fact. But I don't know what happened to, I don't know how he was as a prosecutor. I don't know how he was initially as a judge, but by the time my case came before him, he had really changed, turned to be a person that didn't respect um, defendants' rights. So every time I filed something in his court, we got denied. But the Innocent Project finally presented my petition to him that shows innocent. He was like, I'm going to deny. I'm just going to I'm gonna deny. Mm-hmm. And then he did deny me. And then the Supreme Court remanded my case back for a full evidentiary hearing. And he put on the record, I'm going to deny it again. And that's when the prosecutors um, in New Orleans stepped up and said, look, we got to do something for Cal. Mm-hmm. But this judge is not going to do it. But if we convince, if we tell the judge that Calvin would continue to maintain his innocence, plead guilty, maintain his innocence, would you let him out? And my judge was like, hell no. And then he ultimately had a change of heart in January the, uh, the 7th, 2011. He allowed me to plead guilty to, to um, manslaughter and armed robbery. Mm-hmm. The sad part about all of that is that for 28 and a half years, I told the truth. And then finally got the lie. But when I told a lie that I committed the crime, that's the way I won my freedom. Mm -hmm. So I took the deal because I had been in prison 28 and a half years. I was really exhausted. I I had lost hope. Mm -hmm. And and it was my opportunity to be free. So I took the deal and I walked out out of prison. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw a person walk free on the news while I was locked up. And at the time, I'd been maybe down for, I don't know, like six or seven years. And I knew of the case. I didn't know that I never worked on the case. And I didn't really know the, the guy personally or anything. Um, and I remember, you know, it was like a big deal and, you know, the news cameras, whatever. And then there was someone, uh, I believe it was a prosecutor or someone like some governmental person. You said, like, this shows the system is working. And the guy did, like, 12 years before he was able to show. And in your case, 28 years. And, you know, we, I mean, our organization is full of people, you know, 25, 30, 50. And the system is not working if it takes that long. I mean, people watch football. And when they review a call, they want that review in, like, two minutes. And here we are taking 28 years to, you know, to get the documents to be heard, you know, and I, I wanted to destroy my TV when I heard that that time. I like jumped off my bunk. I was like, the system's not working. Yeah. It's like, you know, someone needs to to own that. And, you know, props to, uh, you know, D.A. Jason Williams, um, you know, administration putting together a, a civil rights division. Yeah. Um, you know, what do you know about about that and, and how that's been? Well, it's a result of with Jason has done with the civil rights division um, is really a miracle. Mm. Uh, it's a sad thing that civil rights divisions have to exist, but that's where all of the documents are. Mm. And now they are being, in, they are now looking at these documents and saying, whoa, this guy is innocent. This guy should not have been convicted. Or this guy should not have been given that amount of, of, of time because they had mitigating factors that they had in their files. So with the Civil Rights Division, what they have done is 
a, a group of lawyers, prosecutors, is actually looking at these cases anew, fresh, and bringing those cases um, mm -hmm. to the judge's attention and saying, look, a, a grave injustice happened in these cases, and we need to do something about it. And they've, they've got kind of a backlog, correct? Yeah, well, they have a backlog because there's so many. Yeah. Because if you think about it. Because we're like a few years into it, but they're still not anywhere close to caught up. Because we didn't have the, our lawyers, the public defender lawyers didn't have the resource. Mm -hmm. And then we was prosecuted on the administration that like say that we're not giving, we're not complying with Brady. Yeah. And we're not making sure that your Sixth Amendment right is secured because we're not going to properly fund it. Mm -hmm. And as a reason, that's why so many cases. Yeah. Um, the unfortunate part some, uh, about that whole, the, uh, all of that is that some of those, cases, those guys, they old and they die mm -hmm. before somebody could actually look at their cases. And did a, a lot of them uh, lose their records in Katrina? Just about the criminal in the criminal district court. Just about everybody lost their records. Did. But is the prosecutors right or they, do they don't they don't keep they're like the prosecutors don't have like their own separate records that might have survived or yeah yeah from my understanding the prosecutors have their own files mm -hmm. their files because it was off it was in a basement mm -hmm. their their files exist whatever that consists of and that is where all of the evidence is that that's where the police reports are that that um, investigative reports um that's where everything is at. So that that was preserved, you know, to a great extent. So that's what the Civil Rights Division is actually looking at is some of these old cases. Um, well, well, if that, I mean, if, if 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 that's accurate, I'm not saying it's not right, but it just get, it sheds new light on how important that district attorney's election was that voters organized, educate. Here we are, um, you know, the the role that we played in trying to to put someone in office who would, for instance, open up this gold mine of records. I mean, obviously there's a treasure chest of, you know, exoneration material, which depending on what way you look at it, whether it's from a human rights perspective or getting the right person versus the wrong person or saving money on people who are getting older that, you know, that are getting that, that end goal of healthcare. Um, that educational part is the key. Because mm -hmm. once, 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 the people in, in our community and society realize that our faith in the, the group of people that we, you know, authorized to, to do these things in our name wasn't as uh, honest and credible mm -hmm. um, as we thought they, they were. That education didn't have us kind of like, oh, we, we made a mistake. We had put, it was a good thing when we had trust in us. We put our trust in the legal system, uh, hoping that the person that is going to be the person to administer administer that, yeah, is a, is, is also going to follow those follow laws. It. But then now, through the education that folk does, people realize, whoa, whoa, we had a few bad apples, mm -hmm. and now then we have to actually look at it. And I think that's what is happening here. Mm -hmm. um, um, and in all this as a result of the Civil Rights Division, we mm -hmm. realized that there was a few bad apples that did a lot of, did what they did was withhold evidence. And as a result of that, and then, you know, 
Another thing is that I, I hope that at some point that we look at the fact that not only was evidence withheld, is it uh, not only did was evidence withheld, but the guys was not given a fair trial because our public defenders were not adequately funded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also another thing that that kind of stunned me when I moved down here um, in 2011, you know, you, you got out when I got in, I guess, yeah. <laughs> but um, is the time, the amount of time they can hold you without charging you and the amount of leverage that can put on somebody, right? And so to give two months of holding somebody with no charges filed, yeah. and it's like, presumably you're arresting them based on something. Yeah, and, and that's you, what... That's what everybody would assume. Yeah. But 60 days is a long time. What happens in those 60 days now? You know, mm -hmm. And um, a person is arrested. I mean, within weeks. You lost it all. He lost it. He's getting evicted. Mm -hmm. his, his, um, he, he's laid on his pavements. Mm -hmm. Somebody prodded him, went in his house and stole all his furniture. Yeah. Or when he, if he get out six, if, if Within six, if the DA's office realized in 60 days the guy should not have been arrested, when he go back home, if he has a home, yeah. his furniture may be still out there. And the stress it, that it puts on a family. He lost his job. Mm -hmm. He lost his community and his family. Mm -hmm. you know? So Yeah. And, you know, and, and a lot of people that do get caught up in that situation, you know, they may have just other reasonable challenges in their life, right? If you're... If you're in, you know, you're a man or a woman and you're, you're in like a relationship kind of spat yeah, yeah. at the moment, then you get scooped up and then the other person might be like, we'll see. And if you're you the breadwinner you know, of the family, then that's in yeah. jeopardy. And so a lot of people end up, you know, pleading guilty, that's but they lean over you with the 90 in his jury. Say, you're going to get three people to say innocent? I doubt it. You're a young black man in this system, right? You, you, you got obviously issues around. Um, race and, and juries, right? There's a whole body of law yeah. around that and all that uh, discrimination. You've got the withholding of the evidence. Uh, you've got the holding somebody in, as you described, hell at, at the Paris jails. So the offer of a plea, you're going to take it, whether, you know, guilty or innocent. And the thing that a lot of, that I realized even when I was awaiting trial and then, you know, first starting out was, um, you know, a lot of people had that that earlier conviction that might have been a year, six months, three months, even just probation. And they just pled it. And then now they're trying to be like, well, I didn't even do that one. I just needed to go away so I could kind of get out and live my life. But now here you are on the second one. A multiple fit. And they're hitting them up the, or even the third one. Right. And they never even really did any time. And it may have been on somewhere. Well, it wasn't even my bag of weed. Right. And now. They're facing like super penalties. And it's like, do you want to take the 30 years or do you want to sign for this five? And people sign. I know a lot of people took deals mm -hmm. just because they just couldn't afford. They, they didn't want to risk going to trial. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of those cases, there was the only evidence that could have exonerated them. But they have that previous convicted mm -hmm. conviction that they played guilty to just to get out of prison. Yeah. Now they convicted felons. If they get on, if they testify as to what actually happened. The jury, the, the the prosecutor is going to tell a jury that this guy was previously uh, convicted mm -hmm. and therefore he's not credible. Yeah. And the, and the threats of giving you 99 years, for example, don't work unless you give people 99 years. And we was given back then, we was giving people 198 years. Yeah. We had one judge um, in section B, Matthew Brandon. 
we, they, he had the nickname is Maximum Mac. If you went to, it was a known fact that if you pled guilty, in his mind, you was on you on the road of rehabilitation. Uh-huh. But he if you didn't plead get guilty, it was no rehabilitation for you. Right. You, you was going to be scamming the system. So anybody that pled guilty back then, they say that he would actually be lenient with those people. But if you went to trial, he gave you the maximum sentence. Yeah, just the presumption of guilt. Uh, well, so you, when you got out, you joined up with Capital Appeals Project, didn't you? Yeah, so uh, because um, while I was on inside, my job was to assist people, sentence to debt. I did that for 19 years. And so when I got out, I applied to the Capital Appeals Project um, as a paralegal. And I was you like, you just like someone told you they were hiring, you filled out a thing, or you knew someone down there? I, I, I knew the lawyers. I knew the lawyers. And, <laughs> you made it sound like you applied at like yeah. Wendy's or something and filled out the form. I knew the lawyers <laughs> and I wanted to be close to my clients. Yeah. These are all the cases you've still been yeah. working on, right? And so that was a blessing. And um, at the same time, um, I wanted to go to school. Mm-hmm. So I got out on a Friday. I was on Tulane campus that Tuesday. Okay. Trying to fill out the forms and everything. To go to school. Yeah. And I'm told that you can't you can't just sign up to go to it school. It doesn't work that way. You gotta look it up. You gotta go do four years of college. You gotta do undergrad. I don't know what an undergrad is, but I had to go do it. And I did it. And I did it at Tulane. Yeah. Nice. And so and along the way, while you're going to school, it wasn't like you were just going full time, right? You were you're still doing this work. I was working for I was working for a full time job mm-hmm. and going to school. Um, mm-hmm. And my full-time job is what I'm doing right now is, a, is being a program director of the Light of Justice. And what I do is with the, about the program or what you know we do is help people help people at the post-conviction stage of their cases. And mm-hmm. Louisiana, after your appeal has been finalized, you're not entitled to a lawyer at that juncture. Only person that's there to help you if you can't afford an attorney is inmate counsel. Mm-hmm. But while in prison, working as an inmate counsel for 20, 23 years, uh, I saw all of the hurdles that we faced. So one of the things that I wanted to do when I got out is try to el- eliminate some of those obstacles. Mm-hmm. One of them was getting access to the documents. Another obstacle was uh, be- us being forced to rely on outdated case laws. Mm-hmm. And so what I did is start helping the counselors on the inside, to keeping them updated, actually going back to, to, to do training and um, and getting other people on the outside to actually take notice of what the counselors are trying to do, mm-hmm. trying to do. Um, and are, so, are you working with them across the system or just in Angola? So before law school, everybody, the whole department, um, every facility, um, in Louisiana. Even if they're in like a local Paris jail? No, so so some people from the local jail would write me and say, look, I heard about this case when you send me a copy of this case. And then I would um, print the case out and mail them a copy. But one of the things, um, another thing that was an obstacle is that our appeals lawyers was not notifying the clients that their appeals was being denied. And as a result of that, it was being you missed the you missed window. the deadline to go to the Supreme Court. So what I did, I developed a system where every every like twice 
or sometimes every every day of the week, I would check the appeal court mm-hmm. records. And if an appeal is affirmed, I would download that appeal decision, print it out, mm-hmm. find out the location of the individual, mm-hmm. mail them a copy of that decision and say, look, I think this is your case. Mm-hmm. If this is your case, here's a copy. Go see an um, inmate counsel nice. to proceed to the next step. And so I did that for many years. About Even, how many a month or a week do you think that added up to? Most of the time, like, I would say about no more than like 40 or 50 cases. In a so month? I, in a month. Okay. I did that every, that was part of my, mm-hmm. and so if, like for the non-unanimous jury verdict, if I spotted that one of those cases had a non-unanimous jury verdict, I would just put a, a little extra paragraph and say, look, it looks like you have a non-unanimous jury verdict. I suggest that you make sure you go get with a counsel to proceed to the next court. Mm-hmm. And if you do, once the Supreme Court deny you, if you would like me to try to find you a pro bono lawyer to appeal your case to the United States Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And so I did that for years. And that was Ben Cohen? And that was Ben. Ben would take the case, we would work on the case and proceed to the United States Supreme Court. After 23 times, 23 tries, Yeah. no, 22, the 23rd, United States Supreme Court said, look, I think we need to look at this case, this issue. Well, and interestingly, that wasn't until after, or I mean, when did they made the decision to hear it after we already won, right? After the, so, so, so the United States Supreme Court said, Review was granted, but by that time, Louisiana citizens. So they did grant the cert before we won it. No, it was after. It was after. So everything happened after. It was after. So it goes to show you, really, it was you know the we you know we we invest so much in and expect you know justice from our courts, but in the end, it's like people power movement. It was the education when Mm -hmm. we would when 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 we went out. Not just you know when we would go give. talk to religious groups and different groups and tell them mm-hmm. about this non-unanimous jury verdict. The key thing was that it was it was based upon race. It was the sole yeah, purpose was to, to make sure that blacks votes didn't count. And through that education, when it was presented to the voters, the voters would say, no, we don't want a law that says yeah. say that. And then the United States Supreme Court say, look, the law is unconstitutional. It's clearly violates the Sixth yeah. Amendment right. And the other thing is like, you know, not to discount the, the racism that gave rise to it, because you had to have something extreme for people yeah. to do something like that. But even if you step that away for a minute and you say like, wait a minute, I thought it was convicted beyond a reasonable doubt. If two people or one person is willing to say, nah, this person didn't do it. Well, doesn't that make a reasonable doubt? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, it, you know, like they sat through the trial, they heard all the evidence, they swore an oath, you know, and and here they were holding their ground, probably in the jury deliberations and saying, nah, I got my my view on it and I'm sticking to my guns. And they held out in the face of probably a lot of peer pressure. Right. Yeah. And if a person was arrested in Mississippi, in Alabama, mm-hmm. they had a in order to convict anybody in any, any other state other than Oregon and Louisiana. All of the, even in the federal, all of the jurors have to agree that yeah. this person is guilty or that the, and that the government proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Only outliers was Louisiana and Oregon. And, the, and Oregon law was 
really against Jewish people. Mm. They, yeah. you know, their whole motive was um, to make sure that you know they punish Jewish people. In our cases, that they was to punish um, blacks. And for like, and I mean, over a century after the Civil War, you still had all white juries, yeah. like across the South in particular. And a lot of people don't know that even though black people, air quotes, had the right to vote, you know, for for such a long time. I mean, up until about 1965, you know, from 1900 to 1965, when that after that Constitution got passed, something like nine percent of black people in Louisiana were were red, were voters, like not like 91 percent were not able to sort of pass all the restrictions. And then if you're pulling jurors from the voting list, well, you already don't really have any black people on the list. And so it's not until what was Batson v. Kentucky, like 76, I think, 1976. Batson was uh, 1986. And that's when the issue came that they had some broke prosecutors, the few blacks that would qualify to sit on the jury, or that, uh, the jury uh, uh, that actually uh, made the cut, the prosecutors would be arbitrarily and racist. I'm going to get it right. But arbitrarily <laughs> yeah. say y'all two blacks are eliminated. Mm-hmm. And so the United States Supreme Court in that case say, look, if you see a, if this has happened, that is unconstitutional mm-hmm. for the prosecutor to use their preparatory challenges to eliminate blacks. And like you said, it wasn't, it wasn't just, it was a few blacks that was really even um, qualified to make it, right? Yeah. And the sad part about our, or even though once we say as a, a society, and we, uh, the voters say we don't want unanimous jury verdicts, what we did, we limited the cutoff date mm-hmm. of who would get access to this new law. Right. And, and so, not only did, did they do that, so Louisiana, we say unanimous jury verdict is no longer valid. At the same time, the same time, we introduce a, a legislature introduce a bill giving the judges the authority to seal the records. So you're in prison, you have a non-unanimous jury verdict, but the judge has authority to say, "Don't going to look. Don't don't give this evidence up." Mm. And that was passed. Nobody voted against that law. That law shut hundreds of people out that didn't, that I can't get my records. Mm-hmm. And now, so Louisiana did the right thing. But on the other hand, they say, oh, we want to make it sure that you don't get your records. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so and now hundreds of people linger in prison, dying in prison, because they, at the same time, they did the right thing. They, they made sure that the right thing could not be enjoyed because now you can't get your records. Mm-hmm. That to me was, and nobody voted against that. Right. Nobody. And I think that's, you know, we do our best, particularly nowadays, to, you know, try to be educating legislators on things that are happening and, you know, maybe questions that should be asked or points that should be raised. Uh, The crazy thing, you sit in front of me, you know, as somebody who basically got convicted prior to so many critical laws being passed that would have saved you and and a lot of people like yourself and you know vote is is full of people of your generation uh and i don't think a lot of the 
like the listeners, I mean, a lot of our, our core people obviously get it because they've been part of this work. But I think the average person doesn't really have a sense of what you thought ended in like 18 something or other was going on all the way up to like 1980s, 1990s, you know, and that's how the mass incarceration becomes so mass so easily. You know, it wasn't just the criminalization of drugs. It was all these different laws that allowed for people to be so easily scooped up. When we when we when they passed the law giving us access to our records, mm-hmm. they also passed a law that say we wasn't people either. Mm. So people like me, and so in Louisiana, in order to get access to public records, you have to be a person. Mm-hmm. When nineteen ninety four ninety five, we passed a law that says that people like me and the rest of the guys that's in prison after the finality of their conviction, they are no longer to be considered to be a person for the purpose of public records. So everybody, so that's what the light of justice, that's mm-hmm. I try to serve, um, I try to be that arm on it, because I am a person now, mm-hmm. because of my- um, Look, I'm here to tell you you're always a person. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but we have a law that says that we fine with that. The, the, the weirdest thing about, that to me about being out, that's really strange to me is that we have legislatures that have no clue on what's going on behind these prison walls. So like when you pass a law, the outlaw now you can have a jury verdict, and then this other person over here passed a law that said, we're going to give you this, but guess what? You can't get it because we're not going to let you get the documents. Or because now you have access to your your, your, your prosecutor files, we're going to pass a law that said you got a time limitation mm-hmm. to get in court. Well, I can't get my records. And then yeah. after that, you pass another law saying you're not a considered a, a person. And nobody questioned that. Mm-hmm. That is, to me, since I've been home. And I that's what I love about vote. We all What you love about vote? Tell we people. created this thing. <laughs> it started with the Special Civics Project. Mm-hmm. And our whole purpose was to, to educate. If we could edu- if we could tell the outside world what's really going on, mm-hmm. they would do something about mm-hmm. it. And so far, that has been proven to be right. I think we're making progress. You know, there's a lot more to go. Um, you know, one thing we were, we were speaking about briefly earlier, I mean, somebody could be born in 2000, have gotten convicted with an anonymous jury in 2017, had it finalized by the Louisiana Supreme Court in early 2019. And they're only like about 23 years old now. And maybe they're doing a life sentence and there's no parole in Louisiana. And this is someone who is being told that the Supreme Court decision that it's not constitutional, that the voters decision that we're going to get rid of this thing doesn't apply to that person. He would have to die in prison. And he's, you know, he's under 30. He's 23. He's 25, whatever, you know, someone young as that. And this assumption that like all these cases are like 1970s guys or 1980s guys or whatever. Right. And And the group that was the year next, the following year, those individuals. Yeah. Someone that he was an OPP with could have been his own cellmate. And that guy got out. And then the other guy stuck in based on, you know, just, you know, some of this process that should have been done a century ago. Yeah. You know? The United States Supreme Court just didn't say that non-unanimous jury verdict is unconstitutional. They say that that system deprived the person of a, 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 a trial, a jury trial. Mm-hmm. 
And nobody in this United States could ever be convicted without a jury trial. Being convicted by a non-unanimous jury verdict is no jury verdict at all. Mm -hmm. Yet you have a whole segment of people, you know. How many petitions was it when they got her 23rd? That was the 23rd petition. How many people have filed since that time, we're we at twenty-three. I am. <laughs> I'm told that everybody on a retroactive tip. That everybody that has a non-unanimous jury verdict, um, I'm told that their a petition was filed on their behalf. But have they gotten to the level petition to the U.S. Supreme Court? Are they there yet? No. It, the problem with that is that our United States Supreme Court said that um, the Ramos decision is not to be retroactively applied. Well, they did say it's up to the states to... And our state followed that and said, we're not going to do it. But All of those people... What if people were to say that, you know, our our state is being unreasonable or and or another thing where let's say you're coming out with like an ineffective assistance of counsel claim saying that you should have been raising this constitutional issue at my trial... And then create another 23 petitions and just keep badgering them to the point that maybe they give in and say, you know what? Person that got convicted in 2017 with a non-fair trial. Yeah, we're going to flip our decision. So what I'm hoping that would happen is that prosecutors. um, That I'm hoping them that some that all of the prosecutors take a step back Mm -hmm. and say, look, all of these now unanimous jury verdicts, conviction is unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And then take another step back and say, look, we're gonna do what our what we've been really taught and trained to do, and what we are obligated to do, that is the minister of justice. Mm-hmm. Do the right thing. Then take another step and say, look, we just gonna we're gonna reverse these people cases, mm-hmm. regardless of whether the their cases were finalized before Ramos. Oh, afterwards, doesn't matter. This is what, as a prosecutor, this is what we're supposed to do. Our first job is not to make sure people stay in prison. This first job is not to make sure that they get convictions. Mm-hmm. As prosecutors, their first duty is to make sure that justice is done. Is done. Yeah. Which, to me, I'm hoping that that's what they do. They yeah. take a step back and say, we re- all those convictions... Is unconstitutional. It wasn't. It, it wasn't a, a jury verdict. Not at all. Then take another step back and say, regardless, we're going to do the right thing and just reverse those cases and just hope that um, we don't ever be in a situation like this. Right. Yeah. So I mean, so speaking of prosecutors and you know them kind of doing the right thing or not, um, you know, it was a recent case. Uh, uh, Attorney General Jeff Landry, who's now running for governor, uh, challenged a bill that was passed that allowed for um, negotiating pleas between, you know, cooperative you know, defense attorneys filing petitions with a prosecutor who's like standing in the breach and a judge who has to make a decision to resentence people. And it was maybe a win and then it got struck down as like violating the clemency power. But. There was a silver lining in there, was there not? Yes, pages 9 to 12. 9 through 12. And in that case, they actually outlined the duties mm-hmm. of a prosecutor. And, um, yeah, you know, the court said that that statute 
on its face is unconstitutional because it it infringes on the executive, mm-hmm. the, the governor authority. However, from pages nine to twelve, the the Supreme Court justice justices actually outlined the duty of a prosecutor. And in old pages, the, the court is actually saying, this is what you, you all are supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Y'all need to get together. The parties, mm-hmm. if they if the prosecutors see an injustice, they they're supposed to get together and try to resolve that. And that's what those pages really detail. And I felt, you know, talking with Ronald too, you know, and, and himself also, you know, working on people's cases, uh, you know, through the system, um, you know, they really laid in there a very clear admission that a prosecutor could just not protest a, uh, you know, file objection to someone being out of time, procedurally barred, other things. Where, so if you filed something previously and maybe you missed that cutoff, like you were talking about earlier, because, you know, their lawyer was was sleeping on the job or overworked or whatever. Um, and now that cutoff doesn't have to be a, a cliff. Yeah. A but prosecutor the is, could just say, like, I'm not going to object. And then the case moves forward. What the court is actually saying is prosecutors, your first duty is this, you order the minister of justice, mm-hmm. period. Do what you need to do. To make this stuff mm-hmm. right, and and it's, and we needed that language now because everybody is starting to question the judicial branch. Yeah, are they political? Hmm. And in our state, our you know our judges they are elected, and so people are at the like, do we? For years we trusted the judicial branch. Yeah, but now that's being questioned. So I think that opinion really kind of like say, look, prosecutors. Uh, do what you need to do because the people trust you. The interesting thing is you have a lot of right wing people out there that, you know, that, that want folks to do more time and more convictions and this and that. And, you know, it's coming from a, a, a position like an assumption of guilt and an assumption where there's no rehabilitation or, 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 or remorse or anything like that. And so even if we take that for granted. The interesting thing is you see a lot of them wanting more transparency, you know, more and uh, they want to understand more about why so and so does what they do and how they do it. I kind of chuckle a little bit where it's like you you might not be so excited about what you find, you know, and it may not look the way you think it looks and it may end up working out better for uh, the folks on our side of the fence that, that really feel like people are being, you know, it's like two brothers and a cousin sometime, you know, playing poker and you think that, you know, you, you have a fair game, but that's not the case. So, uh, you know, we, we encourage that transparency and you see now people judges running for office and they, I think they have a little bit more, at least definitely here in Orleans, there's a little bit more light shined upon, you know, who they are and what they're going to do versus, you know, for years, you know, people probably just got basically appointed. There was no real, have an open seat and they would just kind of select who's going to be the judge and then they would just win the election and a walkover I think the educational um, aspect that really that you know what vote does as a group we are taking our experiences and we sharing it to the outside of mm-hmm. that shedding that light and now the people say well now they're questioning 
they're now making a decision based upon not just one side, it's both sides. Mm-hmm. And so I, that is making up the, the big difference. And they also, we were able to ask, um, you know, have a discussion about things that normally was never discussed mm-hmm. when these harsh rules was enacted and these penalties was imposed, like the science of, about the brain development. Yeah. All this stuff through education made a big difference. Our judges are saying, look, you know, the, what, what happened was a, was a terrible thing. Um, we can't overlook what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a victim, it's, and it is you. What, what caused you to do this if you did it. And then we come to find out that that individual was abused. It was mm-hmm. trauma going on and all, a, whole, a whole bunch of stuff. And But look what he's doing now. He's yeah. a yeah. he's a trustee in the prison. He's the one that's, um, he's over a hostage program. You know, or he's like, training dog. Like this, he got yeah. this book over here. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, it was based on a dog training program. I remember I was in, in Max, I saw some, uh, I think it was a medium, I forget, but I was locked up and I saw like a PBS documentary about, you know, there was like a dog training program in some prison somewhere. I can't remember if it was in America. And so I wrote to our director of the prison system. I was like, we need a dog training program, yeah. you know, and I, I write a, some kind of letter like that, you know, every every few months. And um, they didn't do it while I was there, but they did it after I left. <laughs> and so, you know, some friends of mine, including you know Ryan and, and Steve, um you know they were they were critical dog trainers and steve when he got transferred to connecticut he actually was the sort of the first trainer there when they built out the programs he, he took he was in rhode island uh he was like the main trainer there and transferred that skill over and you know there's a lot of talented skilled people and i always think like when i'm down here and i see you guys getting out in like your 50s and 60s sometimes i mean i was in bald heads but you can just lie and say you just like the shaved look but, uh, but they got you know when i was in there you know as a young person and surrounded by young people looking at, at serious time um you know everything from teenagers to early 20s a lot of us got out in our 30s and 40s instead of our 50s 60s and 70s you know and i i don't even i think i only know like one person who like did something bad and we're talking like hundreds of people. And so like everyone else is, is really trying to do something positive, you know, with their life. They may not be trying to win a Nobel peace prize or something. And they're not, you know, going to law school getting a JD like yourself and, and, you know, trying to like build networks and connections to try to make a better society. But people want the same things anyone else wants. They want like just some peace and quiet, a job that makes them feel, like, you know, they've got some meaning and they're doing something good. Maybe some kids, maybe a partner, um, maybe be good to their elderly parents. You know, maybe it was a mom who stood by them all those years. And, you know, meanwhile, in Louisiana, it's like we have to put up such a fight for anyone to have that opportunity. And there's what, about 6,000 people that are over 50 in our system. And, you know, many of them without a current mechanism for release unless they're not literally on their deathbed and so i mean what are we gonna do just keep on keeping on that's that's all we can do yeah those of us that get out of prison um we got to continue to be the person that we became while we was in prison educators 
um, educating ourselves, helping other people. And in, a, in a doing this, people on the outside would recognize, whoa, what's such? Yeah. What else? What other what other jewels well, can we pull out? Exactly. So when you when you got out and when I moved down here, there was about forty six thousand people in the penitentiary system. And now there's like twenty six thousand people and crime was higher then than it is now, even though people want to say crime is high. But they're not actually looking at the statistics. But the people that go to prison with the pe- the people that's doing the, the crime, the commit crime out, it's not the people that, that just got out. No, yeah. that's not. And I. I, I we know better. Mm-hmm. And so people on the outside, they don't question when they make that correla- correlation. Yeah. Like, how many people I know that did that? I don't know them, but I read about did mass shooting. These people ain't never been to prison. And you know what? As long as I've been with Vote, which has been, you know, like 12 years now or something. Only one time do I recall going to court to support a vote person in 12 years. And that person was was arrested, was accused of something that wasn't, you know, wasn't like a major felony, but it was a felony. And then it turned out that, you know, after a few weeks, they got released. Yeah. And so, you know, if we were the problem, vote would be in the courthouses all the time supporting our members. Uh, But I think where the people in the community maybe get confused, including some of the legislators, is there is some chronic challenges for some people who have addiction issues or mental health issues. And a lot of times their crimes involve like some lower level property offenses and shoplifting. Going in stores, making sandwiches, going in, I was trying to um, get clothes. I knew a guy, he literally, they called him, there was an article about him, something like the sandwich maker or something. He would break into houses and make it, it's funny, I didn't think about him until you just said that, but he would make a sandwich he was not, you know, all, all together. Uh, he was a nice guy, right? But like, so when people talk about third, fourth, fifth type of fence, they're not talking about people that did like major time or even major crimes. They're usually, I mean, to get a fifth offense, it had to be like low enough that you were able to get a low enough time when while they're handing out time like candy, you know, for you to actually live long enough to catch a fifth offense. But if we don't really have a public health approach to to mental health or or addiction. Yeah, they say all our our mental health facilities closed down, and the only mental health facility now in the city is, is the our jail, jail, which is not providing constitutional level of care. So, can we even consider it a mental health facility? It's just a place where a lot of mentally ill it's just people just being housed and saying I'm just gonna mm-hmm. yeah, still is as opposed to treating mm-hmm. um, the people. They um, just let them, they just wait and wait and ultimately lock them up, lock people up. And- yeah. So how are we so lucky to to, to get you in, in the building, you know, after you, you went across the country, you went to Portland, Oregon, Lewis and Clark uh, Law School, graduated from a, a, a great program with, with amazing classmates. You've met people around the country at this point in time. How do, how do you end up back here in this building? Well, we all started this movement at the same time. The Special Civics Project. Uh-huh. We all had an idea that if we, if some kind of way, if we could get out of prison, we could educate other people. We could actually share our experience. Mm-hmm. So I, 
I went to law school knowing where I wanted to be. I wanted to continue to help people in prison overcome obstacles that stops them from their cases being considered. Mm -hmm. That's my my profession. That's what I do. That's what I've always done. Mm -hmm. Vote has has already always done, like Norris, has always done what he's doing now. Mm -hmm. In prison, he did. Chico did the same thing. Wilbur did the same thing. You doing the same thing that you did when you was on the out on the inside. We all doing the same thing that we did on the inside because we think we have the answer. And so, if, would all of us continue to be together? That is the that is mm, the, we're stronger yeah. together. Yes, yeah. I didn't go to law school because I wanted to. Um, Spent all my time in front of a jury. Mm-hmm. I went to law school so I could be put in a position, get the education I need to go into the prisons to help people that cannot afford a lawyer, mm-hmm. to, to help train other people that wants to do the same work on the inside, to help people get access, access to the courts. That's what I would, you know, mm-hmm. and... That's fine. Kind of I, didn't, I didn't go for all every. I just I went to just to show people that uh, that like we could do it, you know, like people that that have been convicted of a serious crime, you know, whether they did it or didn't do it, um, you know, people that have been locked up for for you know a, a serious amount of time can intellectually and work ethically apply themselves to law school and and handle that academic stress and do well and inspire not just others who've been down the same road that they maybe they could do that as well, but also try to inspire the the free community that maybe had never met someone like yourself or myself to be able to say like, wow, like I didn't really seem to know nothing about it until I met Calvin. That's what, <laughs> that's what happened when I went to law school. Mm-hmm. I, I gave my classmates an opportunity to meet a person on, out on the other side of that paper that, mm-hmm. that we're going to, those cases. Mm-hmm. And I think it, being given that opportunity, I'm so glad I was that opportunity came. I was in Port. I went to Lewis and Clark. I'm so happy that I did because of the community that they actually mm-hmm. um if it wasn't for my classmates, I wouldn't survive. Yeah. They got to know me and some of the things that they they didn't judge. I never felt judged there. Mm-hmm. They got to know me. As, I felt judged. Um, Calvin. <laughs> they realized Calvin don't like his laptop. Mm. It's not that I don't like my laptop. I write everything out. Mm-hmm. So they helped me with my laptop. Mm-hmm. If I had a problem, my classmates helped me. If I had a any other problem, if the doors was open to the professors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so glad because I'm... I, I've heard other people talk about their law school, and I'm like, I'm so glad I went to Lewis and Clark. How'd you handle the winter being a Southern Louisiana boy? Like, so the only thing that I couldn't <laughs> handle was the grayness, <laughs> the lack of sun. Uh-huh. That drove me insane. Yeah, I was, I was, I love everything. I, the rain didn't bother me. The mm-hmm. cold weather didn't bother. What okay. bothered me was that lack of vitamin D from that sun. Listen, yeah. you're not doing a good job of selling people on the Pacific Northwest right now. You gotta be, you gotta <laughs> I would tell anybody if you if you decide to go to the Pacific, you know, Northwest, 
take in consideration how can you get a scholarship or can you get some extra money uh -huh. so on weekends you could fly to a place where there's sun okay. and then come back. You don't, know, they have these lights now that you can put on the wall that like Them lights don't, didn't do no. no justice for me. <laughs> My classmates, they tried it. Really? In the end, we was all exhausted. Oh. So I was... I would add a part of that, that scholarship that people that give that you could go take a trip on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, shoot down to San Diego. Go anywhere where it's sun uh -huh. and then come back. You'll okay. feel different. And, you know. This is good life advice. I'm yeah. Take, well, it's funny because, like, you know, you heard it here from, from the source. Um, you know, another book that we had lying down here is, is one of my favorite writers, Franz Fanon. And anyone that's ever got an email from me has seen a quote of his that's at the bottom of my email, which is, you know, the peasant doesn't have to talk about the truth. The peasant is the truth. And I really appreciate you being here today because you are the truth. Even though we talk about it, you be about it. And when you walk in the room, you change the temperature of the room. You change how people sit up. So I really appreciate getting to know you over the years I've been. I mean, one of the first people I met when I got down here, the man who actually. I even uh, remember saying. Said, if you got, I give you a bicycle. Yeah, you bought your damn bicycle. First bicycle, if you get in two lane, <laughs> and you got in two lane, it was like, whoa. Then I said, that's possible. Yeah, I got a free bike out of the deal, so it worked out. And you had a conviction, and I had a conviction. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, Bruce could do it. I could yeah. do it, and you did. And you know, and I, um, and I, and I did it. So yeah, and that's then. Yeah, that was a, kind of like the highlights of having to give up that bicycle because you made it. Yeah, that's why I got stolen on me, but I got another one. <laughs> but, you know, I, it gave me a lot of good miles yeah. that helped me get to school. It didn't get stolen until after I graduated. So. And, it, and it's, it's a testament, <laughs> testament that without obstacles, we could do a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We could do whatever. We could do. We could live and do whatever, ever. Everything that other people is doing on the outside, we could do it mm -hmm. without the obstacles. But yeah. if somebody's putting their foot behind our, the door, then we have a problem. Mm -hmm. And there's one thing I've learned is that, you know, teamwork, I'm not going to say that slogan makes the dream work, but teamwork is critical. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks, you know, for a lot of reasons, don't even have the option for teamwork because they're, you know, solitary confinement is one example, right? Yeah. But, you know, for a lot of us, you know, the, the, the temptation might be to kind of do it yourself. Um, you know, those of us that are like, yeah. you know, childhood survivors, like we maybe did a lot ourselves, but for me, like, you know, joining this team and building yeah. this team uh, has been like really the, the, the key to, to our success collectively. Yeah. And if the door is big and if there's stuff behind it, you're going to need a lot of people to kind of pull, push, pull and tug and coordinate to get that door open. Yeah. So that's what's up here. But teamwork, teamwork. Calvin, any 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 final thoughts for uh, for the the change the change people? Yeah, become a member. Vote. Mm. Come see the family members. I, I I would hope that you know the the parents and the family members of those individuals that's incarcerated will come mm -hmm. and actually learn mm -hmm. because. What they know about the system is based upon what they heard, and generally, what they heard about the system is totally wrong. Mm. Yeah, I hope that they um, people come and, and ask questions. They want to know um, just ask ba basic questions. What option do my son or my daughter have? Mm -hmm. They're in prison. 
They seem to have got, you know, their minds right now. Mm -hmm. So what's the options for them? What's stopping? Uh, what's the option? Do they have, a, um, once, if they were young, do they have the option of uh, opportunity to go to school? Mm -hmm. um, and they could come here and they could ask those questions. They could be a part of this, this whole community. And I think that's what's, I think New Orleans is blessed to have vote where the people well, we got Baton Rouge and Lafayette chapters too. Exactly. And, with, with staff they are, and, and offices and monthly meetings. They can come to the yeah. monthly meeting yeah. and ask questions. They can mm -hmm. learn a lot about this criminal justice system that mm -hmm. is seeming to be snatching mm -hmm. people out of the community and bringing them to another place. Yeah. Um, they can come learn. Mm -hmm. And that's they, what it's all about learning and about it's, and we need a lot of education about our criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, people can become members of Vote, and you know, and, and find out a lot about kind of how that works through VoicesOfExperience.org. Yeah. But they can also, you know, get down with voters organized to educate and yes. be an informed voter. Uh, where we're doing a lot of hard work to, you know, kind of investigate who it is that's running for office, what kind of, of values they have, and, and how they might be able to help the community, and you know, if they're going to operate with the type of integrity. That yeah. you were saying that we need in our prosecutors. Yeah. And even the prosecutors, the mm -hmm. judges could say, you know, I, I don't know about this issue. Mm -hmm. I don't know about what happens in prison. I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't know what I don't know. So let me go to vote and, and learn mm -hmm. and hear, hear a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And then just imagine how well informed that judge would be, or well informed that prosecutor would be, or the lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So even the churches. Yeah. Even the mental health um, community, everybody could learn from our experience. Mm -hmm. And the good thing about it is that we are willing to share it. Yeah. Well, with that, is going to be the last word. Uh, my, la my last word is that come see, come to vote. That's what's up. All come right. get educated about our, this, this, our system. Calvin Duncan, JD. Thanks Jay for coming oh, through. Thank you. <laughs> a lawyer. He's a lawyer. I can't Somebody say told me the other day, I'm a lawyer. No, no. I'm a lawyer, but I'm not an attorney. Yeah. Attorney, you get your life. That's what I say, too. I'm a lawyer. I'm used to that. All right. Well, this is DJ Bruja. I am out of here. Uh, word up to Dangerous Devin Davis on the ones and twos. And all right. We're going to chill till the next episode. Thank you. That was awesome. All right.